three, two, one. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Let's Dig In. I'm your co-host, Rachel Barnett, alongside Christopher Ryloff, and as always, our host, Rich Rosendell. This week, we had the amazing opportunity to speak with Dr. Bill Schindler, who is an archaeologist, professor, chef, one in a million. This guy does it all. He has spent his years traveling the globe in search of how or why humans have come so far from our ancestral roots. We've we've adapted this modern processed food society that we're currently living in. And Dr. Bill teaches us how our bodies were truly designed to be nourished. And this episode is just filled with information on nourishing our bodies and how to properly nourish our bodies. His whole thing is to eat like a human again. And he does get down to that in this episode. So without further ado, let's dig in. All right. Well, Dr. Bill, great. Thanks for being here and uh, really excited to be able to talk with you today. Uh, For those of our listeners, because we have definitely uh, a lot of people that are into uh, food and a healthy lifestyle and a lot of culinary enthusiasts out there. But for those of our listeners that maybe don't know a lot about you, can you just give us an overview about yourself and, um, and what you do? Sure, I'd love to. First of all, it's an honor to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, it, my, uh, my background is a little bit different, I think, than most of the guests you probably have. Uh, my professional culinary training came much later in life. Although, you know, I started, I remember as a five-year-old kid watching Julia Child on my black and white TV at home (laughs) repeatedly every time that it was on. I always loved cooking, always loved the kitchen. But, um, you know, my my entryway into the the work that I'm doing now actually comes from archaeology and anthropology. Wow. So um, it started, my father had me hunting and fishing and trapping since I could walk, even though I grew up in the suburbs of New York City in in New Jersey, right on the coast, um, right on the shore there. He he worked really hard to keep me outside as much as possible. And it was made a tremendous influence on my life. But, um, you know, my connection with my father and my mother in the field and in the kitchen and uh they instilled in me this this love for understanding the past, understanding where we came from. And I loved I loved to go hunting with my father. And he had me out gun hunting. Um, and I, I but I wanted something a little bit more closely connected to, you know, my food. I wanted it's almost like uh, if you look historically at you know, the really cool thing about how the French would fight in, in wars, you know, in medieval times, they, they always, they, they loved the hand-to-hand combat. They loved the sword more than the bow because it was more connected. Right. So I, I actually wanted to bow hunt. I wanted to, I wanted to be that much closer to, to my food source and where it came from. So I learned to bow hunt and then I learned, I wanted to then make, make bows. Right. So I learned to make bows and make string and make yeah. arrows. And eventually I got to the part where, the tip of the arrow like i couldn't i couldn't figure out how did people make these these tips or these stone tips for these arrows i wanted to do it it was the last piece i didn't want to just go kill a deer with you know partially made equipment i wanted to make it completely by myself and then also the same kind of tip 
and point that somebody living in the same spot I was standing 2,000 years ago killed a deer. I mean, that was the kind of connection I was looking for. And I realized the answer to a lot of the questions I was trying to, to answer, you know, they were in anthropology and archaeology. And so I, I dove really deep and spent a large part of my academic career learning about archaeology, how to do archaeology, and most importantly, all of these primitive technologies that our ancestors created over millions of years that allowed us to overcome our, our own limitations and do things like hunt deer. And this, and I'm sure we'll get into it at some point, but the, the short of this much longer story is that that route drove me right back to food, right? It, 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 the idea that we as humans, what we do differently than almost every other animal is with our food and our diet is that we create technologies to make food as safe and nourishing as possible and overcome our own biological limitations. And that is the diet that built us as humans, both biologically and culturally. And that's, and, and it's all focused on that technology. So from a roundabout way, I came back to food, diet and health, and then got uh, my professional training later. What kind of stuff did you, uh, were you hunting at that, at that time? I'm just kind of curious. I just went on my first quail hunt uh, ever just a few uh, months ago. And it was like, it was pretty, pretty wild. But uh, you mentioned deer. What else? Then I, I was hunting deer. I was hunting turkey. We were doing a little bit of waterfowl hunting. I'm on the eastern shore of Maryland now. And it's so strange okay. because in, in, in Jersey, anybody that hunted, hunted deer. And some people hunted, you know, geese and ducks. But here, everybody, you know, we're on the fly. We're on the major flyways. Everybody hunts geese and ducks and some people hunt deer here but it was more that small game squirrels rabbits those sorts of things so okay. when you guys are out hunting now are you still making your own equipment and technologies to go out and hunt or how does hunting look now that is a really good question a combination of all of it so there is certainly an advantage you know no and no matter what we do whether we're picking up a gun or using a spear, right? We're, or even just using a knife, we're over using technology to overcome our limitations. Like it's very difficult. Humans are not, it's a long, humans are not designed to like chase everything down and rip it apart with our teeth, right? So we're always using something to overcome our limitations. There's different levels of that, right? So there's, there's homemade bows and arrows and then there's, you know, M16 machine guns, different levels, but they're <laughs> still achieving the same, uh, same goal. So when we hunt, it's mostly my son and I, but my whole family's involved at some level. Uh, when we hunt, we hunt for two main reasons. Uh, one is to actually nourish our family, right? Because we, we eat everything that we hunt. We do a complete nose to tail approach to everything that we kill. Um, and we want to be a part of that entire process. But the other reason that we hunt is for that connection, for the you know connection to our environment, connection to each other, connection to our food. Um, that connection, I feel, is best achieved at its highest level with returning to those really ancestral skills and, and, and hunting. So we do hunt with entirely homemade equipment and we do it every year, but we also do gun hunt still. Um, and that's, we're very successful with the primitive equipment, but we do fill the freezer a little bit better with the more modern equipment shotguns and the like. Right. That's a, that's a good question. So you and your family have such a tight knit bond, it seems. And it seems like in modern, modern homes that it, parents have a hard time. Maybe Chef Rich can speak more on this because I don't have kids, but, you know, having a hard time getting their kids to eat 
you know, out there or different things. Like kids just want chicken tenders. Like how did you and your wife approach raising your children in a way where they respect the food and they, you know, they have this eating like a human diet? It's, it's still in, it's still in process. I will tell you that we're still, we're still actively working on all of those pieces. I do. We, we, my wife and I, it actually started with my wife and I first figuring out and we're still figuring some of it out, figuring out how we were going to raise our family and what sort of those parameters were, what was important to make sure our kids ate, what was important to make sure that was not in their diets. Um, what most importantly, what the message was with, how we uh, approach food and how we cook food and how we ate food together. Um, and then it was after that, that we could start to implement these things. And it was, and it continues to be a very long process. We certainly haven't figured it all out, but I will say, um, and I mentioned this earlier, the people have asked for a very, one of the things that humans like to do is try to figure out what separates us from the rest of the animals on the planet. I don't know why we do that. We inherently want to do this. You know, what's different about humans? And just about everything that we come up with, when we really look into the animal world and understand what it really means, they break down. Like other animals do these things. Like, okay, we communicate, advanced forms of communication. Well, there's a lot of ways animals communicate really complex thoughts. There's um, the fact that we make and use tools animals make many animals make and use tools some with you know advanced forethought of gathering materials and storing them in places and although what what is what hasn't broken down um a suggestion about what makes humans different than every other animal on the planet is the way that we share and consume food together um and several anthropologists have done a lot of work in this area but you know one of the best examples i've i've, I've ever heard of is you know, they paint the picture and they say listen take a table like in your kitchen and, you know, we sit down as humans and sit down around it and share food. Sometimes we share food several times a day around the same table and we, and we derive enjoyment and pleasure and satisfaction by doing this, engaging in this act. But think about the rest of the animals, every other animal on the planet, other than a parent to a child, you know, mother birds giving worms to their kids. There really isn't the act of sharing food in that context. And just think about what it means to sit around a table um, and share food. You know, one of the, first of all, you're hungry and you're sitting down, you're facing one another and eye to eye contact in the animal world is a, is a sign of aggression. When we're eating, we're showing our teeth. That's a sign of aggression. And if you put other animals in that situation and put food in the middle of the table, they're all eating at the same time, but it's an all out melee. They're not sharing food. They're all competing for food, but humans share food. We build traditions and religions and, 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 and um, all sorts of things around you know, the human experience is sharing food. So it is important to make sure that we share food. So at the heart of, to answer your question, at the heart of what my wife and I try to do in our house, and certainly we're not the only ones, is we build our family around that table, mm-hmm. around that kitchen, around that hearth. And it isn't just the eating, it's the preparation. It's the, it's the gathering of the supplies, it's the gathering of the resources, it's the preparing of those resources, and then sitting down and enjoying that. So I do think that's all important. Um, and for some people... That means going out and foraging and hunting for your own food with your kids. For some people, that means, you know what, getting their butts out of the car in the parking lot and bringing them in the grocery store. So they know how to actually pick apples or you know, pick out produce in the produce section and how to buy meat from the butcher. Um, at all levels, that part's very, very important. Um, but, you know, it is a struggle because we are competing 
with commercials on TV. We're competing with what's happening in our kids' friends' homes. We're competing with what the grandparents want to feed the kids. I mean, it's all the same thing over and over and over again. It, it's not, it feels like it's a constant competition. And I'll give you a quick example of, of a, of a mind-blowing experience we had in Thailand once that really, I think, helped us realize what it takes and why the cooking and the gathering and the materials, again, whether it's at the grocery store in the middle of the woods, is all important to be a, being able to make sure that our kids' minds are open to real food. So I've been very fortunate to be able to, to travel the world with my family and live and work with indigenous, indigenous and traditional groups and, and understand their food ways and, and, and customs and things. And we spent some time in Thailand several years ago. And the deal we had with my youngest daughter, so I have three kids, uh, Brianna's our oldest, uh, Billy's our middle, he's our boy, and Alyssa's our youngest. And Brianna intellectually will try anything, even if it repulses her, you know, <laughs> because she wants to, she thinks she needs to try it. And Billy will try anything just to gross his sisters out. But uh, Alyssa is a little bit more reserved and, 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 um, and less adventurous, maybe sometimes in some of her, in some of her eating. So we're going to Thailand purely to look at entomophagy or insect consumption at all different levels, from high-end restaurants to markets in Bangkok to really rural areas and, and working with villagers who are eating all sorts of different things. Um, so we made her a deal. She said, I'm going to eat any bugs. And, she, and then she started doing some internet research and she found out that in the middle of Bangkok was this... I don't want to say restaurant, but a restaurant called the Unicorn Cafe. And she loved unicorns. And she said, if we take her to the Unicorn Cafe, she'll try all the insects that we give her. Well, we looked up a Unicorn Cafe and there was nothing about the food there that I would have ever served, that any of my kids eat. And on top of it, it was just like really weird. I mean, it looks like <laughs> unicorns threw up all over the walls. You had these like really filthy... Um, unicorn costumes that everybody was supposed to wear, like the kind of things that you'd find in somebody's basement that would scare you and you'd call the police on, like really <laughs> weird stuff. But, and everything came with an ice cream cone upside down on top and sprinkled. It was, whether it was a hamburger or ice cream, it didn't matter. So we said yes, because it was important for me to try this and I said, we'll figure it out. But we made the mistake of going there first. Oh, like no. that was, it should have <laughs> been the last stop, right? It should have <laughs> been the last stop and a reward, but just because of logistics, it made sense to go there first. So we went there first and then that was it because after she had done it, all the different, I mean, we were at this, one of the best restaurants I've ever been in my life that was solely focused on it. And it was solely focused on insects called insects in the backyard. It was this pop-up thing. Amazing. Great chef. Um, and things were plated like they came out of Noma. I mean, amazing. And the attention to detail, and it wasn't just like insects were slapped into a dish. It was particular insects were chosen and prepared because of the textures or the flavors they brought. To, I mean, it was incredible. We ate, we had opportunities to eat there. We were eating in the markets in Bangkok and she refused all of it. And we even met somebody who was um, originally from Italy that was setting up a, a pasta um, manufacturing plant in Bangkok using cricket flour. And I mean, even in, in forms of ground up crickets as pasta, she wasn't going to eat it. I'm like, oh my God, this is like, ruining everything I thought I was building and, you know, in their <laughs> thought process. So then we went, the very last, we went into the middle of a very rural area in Thailand and spent some time in this village where they were um, uh, weaver ant egg farming and there were cricket farming there and all this. So we spent time there uh, 
harvesting uh, the weaver ant eggs and, and working with the villagers and the entire village came together. And we spent the day cooking and preparing all of the food. Now, up until this point, everything was served to her, given to her, try this, it's on a plate, whatever. But this day, the entire village was together. She was a part of the cooking process. Um, there was a huge language barrier, but, but food and cooking really broke through that barrier. And it was a magical day. And at the end of this day, we feasted, literally. And every single dish didn't have some insects in it. Insects were the priority of each dish. And nothing was hidden from her because she helped prepare it. She saw the crickets and the mealworms and the, and the, and the and eggs and everything else and the uh, silkworms and everything that went into all of the food. And she ate it all. She ate every bit of it without complaint. And I didn't even have to nudge her. She dove right in. And the difference was the, I'm convinced, was the context. Mm-hmm. She was a part of it. She was a part of the process. She was a part of all the history and tradition and culture that brought those dishes to the table. And I think about it all the time in my teaching. I think about it all the time in my own kitchen at home. That, you know, the, the kids being a part of foraging or hunting or cooking or engaging with the farmer where the stuff comes from, and then the preparation and then putting on a table is an entirely different ask of them to eat that food than it is to slap it down there and say, eat it because it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that didn't necessarily specifically answer your question, but the answer is I'm still struggling with it and always will be because there's so many outside influences with people and manufacturers and a food system with a hell of a lot more money and power than I have, um, <laughs> but that are influencing it all. But the way that I've seemed to navigate it best is when the kids and my family are a part of the entire process, not just the end goal of eating something on a plate. So Dr. Bill, what, what was the, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, it, it's helpful to kind of hear the origins of kind of like how, <clears throat> how you got first introduced um, earlier on in your childhood, but like, what was the turning point or the, the inspiration behind creating your brand? And obviously, and also like, how has it changed uh, or, sure. you know, since its inception, but was there, was there life a, like a life experience or did you see something, you know, conditions around you that kind of said in your mind's eye, this is, this is kind of where I want to go with this brand. Um, you know, what, what was kind of the, uh, the inception point for it? Oh, that's a great question. So let me, let me answer that by first saying what the brand really is, what it means to eat like a human, to eat like a human means to me to take advantage of and focus on the things that we humans do to make food as safe and nourishing as possible before we put it in our mouths. Um, and I'll expand on that in a minute, but let me, I think I needed to start that way because almost every conversation about food, diet, and health, whether it's with a nutritionist or a dietitian or a doctor or whatever new diet fad is out there is focused on what we eat. You know, it's, the questions that are trying to get answered are, what should I eat? What should I stay away from? How much should I eat? How little should I eat? Whatever. And it's like, should we eat bread? Should we eat cheese? Should we eat dairy? Should we eat sugar? And all, I mean, that, that's the kind of almost every diet conversation is focused on this. And that's the conversation I would have in my head my entire life. I have had an, an unhealthy relationship with food up until the past 15 years throughout my whole life. I was a pudgy kid. And then I became a wrestler at, in both college and a division one wrestler. And even though I took a more pudgy form and turned it into the appearance of an athlete, 
my diet wasn't right and I wasn't healthy. And then as soon as I stopped wrestling, all the weight came back on. I, I suffered from all sorts of metabolic um, syndrome and it, it was terrible. And I tried to solve these things through the traditional means of, okay, I went to nutritionists, I went to dietitians, I went to doctors, I followed South Beach and Weight Watchers, all of them. And none of them worked. And all of them are focused on what should I eat, what should I not eat? The crazy thing is that no other animal on the planet asked that question. Like no other animal hires nutritionists to tell them how to eat. No other animals have so many books to tell them how to eat. Um, what, what's, what, why do we have to ask that question and why can't we find the answer? Well, the reason is, there's several reasons. One is it's almost an unanswerable thing. And the other part of it is we don't have to ask anybody that question. I'm convinced we can, and we'll get back to this in a minute, but we are fully equipped through millions of years of evolution to make those decisions for ourselves. That's why eating is such a sensual experience. Our body is sending us signals, tell, telling, answering that very question, what should I eat, how much, and how little. Here's the thing that I found that is the impetus behind the brand, Eat Like a Human. It is the focus of all my work now, and I am convinced is the answer to the question for any of us trying to understand how to eat in the most nourishing, sustainable, and ethical way possible. Humans, humans are omnivores, and we, we eat a variety of different things and get nutrition from a variety of different things. But the sort of caveat there is most of us hear that and then say, oh, well, that makes sense. We're biologically designed to be omnivores, and we're not. We are not omnivores by design, or we're not omnivores biologically. We are omnivores by technology. Right? We are not designed to eat almost every food that we eat. And, and, and here's the problem. Everybody's got to stay, stay tuned for just a second here that's listening because um, I'm going to say a couple things that sound really strange, but then I promise I'll bring it back together. We are not designed to eat almost everything that we eat biologically. We are not designed to eat bread. We are not designed, most of us, to consume dairy as, as adults. We are not designed to eat animals. But, in fact, we are only designed biologically to eat those foods that we were eating before we started creating technologies. We are designed to eat a very limited amount of fruits, wild fruits, a very limited amount of wild vegetables and insects. That's it. I mean, that's literally what we were eating before we started creating technologies. Here's the crazy part of, and this is the part where everybody has to stay tuned for a second. That doesn't mean we shouldn't eat those foods. In fact, this is going to sound even crazier. We require nutrition from those foods in order to support these bodies. The thing that's different about humans and the reason that uh, we have to ask a different question than other animals is that we, starting three and a half million years ago, started creating technologies that allowed us to overcome our physical limitations, access awesome food from our environment that we otherwise couldn't access with these nails and these teeth and these relatively weak bodies. Most importantly, take those resources that we have no business eating transform them into their safest and most nourishing form possible before it touches our lips and then eat it and get massive and make crazy nutrition from it and literally build these bodies and build these massive brains over a period of several million years to what we have today. The, the, the question we should be asking is not what do we eat, but how do we eat? The thing that humans do is process food to make it as safe and nourishing as possible before we eat it. Other animals are physically designed 
to eat specific diets. Cows have a four-chambered stomach to the cud, have fermentation chambers, and can take tough vegetable materials and break them down and derive nutrition. We would starve to death trying to eat grass in the field, but they can support these huge bodies. Granivorous birds are specifically designed because they have crops and gizzards to deal with grains straight off the stalk and safely derive nutrition from them. We are not, right? We are not designed to do these things, but we humans process our food first. And here's the cool thing for all the chefs and people that love to cook that are listening to this. This is what you do. I mean, some people, you know, I, I'm a, an anthropologist by training and a history major in, 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 um, as an undergrad. And the thing that would always get driven into us is the earliest profession was prostitution. No, no. The earliest human profession was being a chef. I mean, it, the, the, the first thing and the thing that literally created us as humans is cooking. The way, and I don't mean cooking necessarily because heat's involved, but transforming a raw material into something that we can, as humans can safely and efficiently derive incredible nutrition from. And if we come from that perspective, a lot of the food categories that we use to try to answer questions, we should or shouldn't eat them, completely break down. So for instance, um, you know, I get asked all the time from an anthropological and archeological perspective, should humans be eating bread? That's the question. I mean, almost every time I speak, there's always the same two questions. Should humans be eating bread and should humans be consuming dairy as adults? And the answer is, well, that question phrased that way is unanswerable. Because are we biologically designed to eat grains? Absolutely not. In fact, they're incredibly dangerous to us. And if we eat them in certain ways, it robs our bodies from nutrients in, in, in addition to all the toxins it brings into our body. But if we forget bread as a category and, and think about the processing involved, there's a huge difference between Wonder Bread and a long, wild fermented loaf of sourdough bread, two completely different foods. One of them, I would suggest, should never be in our diets whatsoever. And the other, I could very easily make the case that that is the safest and most nourishing way to consume grains you know, for humans and that you can derive safety derived nutrition from. Same, and we can break down all the different categories of food in that way. So the brand Eat Like a Human, the message, you know, uh, what we're trying to get across is this. We're trying to inspire, empower, and nourish people in every way possible. So the inspiration comes from understanding our ancestral dietary past and the role that um, technology plays in transforming food into its most safe and nourishing form possible. The empowering part is, is, is teaching people to take those skills and use them in their own kitchens to nourish their family to the best in the best way possible. And the nourishing part is, you know, we fully realize that some of this is, um, you know, depending on people's schedules or, you know, all sorts of different reasons. Some of it is difficult for people to do on a daily basis, but they still want that food to nourish their families um, on a regular basis. And we have just started launching several different food lines that are in line with our entire, our entire message and mission. In, uh, in your book, Eating Like a Human, uh, the, the newest book, um, first of all, I wanna know where can we find this? And, but also, do you talk more about the way to, uh, to eat or is it more of a larger picture uh, of, of a lifestyle? Like how to, like what is kind of the, uh, the outline of, of the book and the content? So there's, there's three major pieces of that book. And it's almost just like I just mentioned. 
it, uh, what I wanted to accomplish, so first of all, the book is called Eat Like a Human and it's from uh, Little Brown Publishers and uh, it will pre-order in March on Amazon. Okay. Uh, I'm super excited, putting the final tweaks of all, all the chapters in right now. It is, there's, there's really three different aspects or goals I was trying to accomplish with this book. Number one is I really wanted to lay out uh, a comprehensive uh, view of our dietary past. I mean, people talk about, you know, food in the past and they, and they talk about a hundred years ago or 300 years or 500 years ago. And that does nothing. That does nothing to lay the groundwork for understanding how we should be eating. Modern day homo sapiens, us anatomically modern homo sapiens appear 300,000 years ago in Morocco. And I would bet the more we look, we might even push that date back further. So that means the diets that built us as a species have been in place for an incredibly long time. And while there's a whole lot of cool things to understand and, and get from understanding what diets are like the past several hundred years, there's a larger framework that can be created by looking back further. So this does, um, it's a tertiary look, but a comprehensive look at our dietary past over three and a half million years. Um, and the big takeaways from that. Uh, there is a, and then what we do is we try to reframe or allow people to look at a um, uh, their, the way that we eat today through a completely different context, a completely different lens. The idea that um, we should rethink what food means and how we make food, what, what that really means. So there's that lifestyle piece. What, what, is, what is food? What is real food? And how, does, how can I bring that into my own life? And then every single chapter is chock full of tips and recipes. And very accessible. What, what, what I've literally done is taken, um, you know, all of the things that I've learned over the years that I implement into my family with kids and, you know, teenagers and all of it. Um, and, and I broke them through. The chapters are divided. After we figure out, you know, sort of that comprehensive understanding of our dietary past, it, the chapters are broken out, you know, plants animals, dairy, grains, maize, you know, like that. And, and every set of cha every uh, set of recipes relates back to all of the lessons that those, that those chapters provide. So the idea is it is an incredibly accessible book that you can use to transform the way you feed your family. That is so cool. You said March, we can pre-order. March, it comes in pre-orders in March. Yes. Great. So uh, you have online classes, is that correct? Yeah, so part of that education piece is we, we do here at the at the food lab. We um, and let me just say something about the food lab very quickly. So I am a professor at Washington College here in Chestertown, Maryland, and I founded and now direct the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is a center that's focused on research and education um, uh, based around all the things we just mentioned, all of the ways that uh, using archaeology and anthropology to best understand the human uh, relationship with food and our environment. And this is a, an off campus. And this is, um, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you live from, <laughs> from, from the Eastern Shore Food Lab. This is one piece of it here. And here at the Food Lab, we have done a whole host of classes for several years, uh, folks, and everything we just, we just <laughs> talked about. Uh, and really complete um, immersions in um, start to finish aspects of, of the human relationship with food. So everything from foraging to nose to tail butchery to fermentation, um, you know, working with raw dairy and fermentation, all those sorts of things, mistomalizing maize. And 
when COVID hit um, and my wife and I really started to ramp up Eat Like a Human and, and building that brand and building that, that, that business, uh, we had a lot of calls for, you know, we thought, okay, well, all the online or all the in-person classes are, are, are shot for a while. And they are most of them, but it was a lot of call for online classes. So we did several different things. Uh, all the, uh, one of the uh, directors from the Nat Geo show, the uh, great human race that I was on and I are still very good friends. His name is Brandon Goulish. He's an Emmy award winning um, director. And he and I put together and my wife, a whole host of online downloadable classes for anybody that's interested in learning these things at their own pace. But what we found even more valuable was we launched a series of month long classes, each built around a theme, one nose to tail, uh, one, you know, raw and fermented dairy and cheese making, uh, foraging and, and, and wild plants and fermentation, um, uh, sourdough bread, those sorts of things. And the class meets once a week live, tons of um, introductory materials, tons of work on, on Facebook groups and things in between. And it was a great way to take a lot of these com with seemingly complex processes and break them down over a period of time that you know allow us to get into a lot of different people's homes and kitchens, answer their questions, troubleshoot as they go. So it's not like a, a two hour class. It's literally hours and hours of, of class interactive with time in between for people to try out things that they've learned and to troubleshoot. And they've, uh, they've been really, really rewarding for me. And I hope it's rewarding for the people that have been in them. Where can people find these classes? Okay. So all of those classes, um, uh, our blog, all the eat like a human um, aspect of, of what we're doing can be found at eat like a human.com okay, on our website cool. right there. Cool. That's great. Uh, Dr. Bill, can you talk a little bit, uh, in addition to what you were saying about the online classes, about the Eastern Shore uh, Food Lab that you that you have or you, you're building. Yeah, absolutely. So when I first came here to Washington College 14 years ago, uh, food has always been a central focus of my teaching um, because it really, you know, what I found out years ago, and you know, as an archaeologist, I'm very focused on technologies in the past. Almost every single prehistoric technology has something to do with food. Obtaining food, obtaining resources, processing food, storing food, redistributing food, sharing food, whatever. And what I, what I found was that you know archaeologists are focused on things, and the things are products of technologies. And if almost all those technologies have something to do with food, then it all relates to one another in some really powerful ways. And food, as you all know, food is a great way to um, to to teach, and it is a great medium. To, the really cool thing about food is everybody deals with food on a regular basis. Everybody has some sort of a relationship with food and you can use that as an entryway to talk about all sorts of topics, all sorts of things um, very easily. So food has always been central to this. And, you know, I'm here at Washington college. It's a small, it's a beautiful uh, small liberal arts college here in Chestertown, but we didn't have a facility to um, support the kind of, food related teaching that I wanted to do. So I built a commercial kitchen in my basement. Students would be in my house all the time. I live about seven miles away, which was awesome, but it got to be a little much to have my students and my family, everything at the same time. So the idea for the Eastern Shore Food Lab was planted many years ago. I worked over time to get the funding for it. Um, eventually a local restaurant uh, owner was gonna sell and we took, I had a, a, a great, great funder um, you know, backing this and, and we grabbed, we, we bought the restaurant, 
and transformed a restaurant into a really engaging place where, again, we do research, we do all sorts of presentations. COVID has certainly made an impact on it. And uh, we do a lot of teaching here. The focus of the Eastern Shore Food Lab is the research behind all the things we've been talking about this whole time. Um, it's, it's really uh, student-centric, Washington College students, but we have a huge outreach to the community. And in fact, what, we, what we're looking to do very soon is there'll be a, um, some of that food production I mentioned earlier is gonna come out of here so we can get more of the community uh, involved at the Food Lab. So basically, is 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 a lab that you have that is to produce the content, or you bring like students and everyone to be in the process of everything that you're creating. It's a, it's a little bit of both, but a lot of the so um, a lot of my work involves looking at the archaeological record, uh, both in written forms and also in the ground itself. Awesome. Um, understanding the processes that we define there, and we can talk about some of them if, if you're interested. But understanding those processes. Um, doing a lot of ethnographic work with people around the world that take those processes and are still engaged in them or some level of them that sort of bring it to life and allow us to understand the cultural aspects of the stuff that we find in the ground. And most importantly, and this is the really important part, because those, those two things alone are pretty neat and exciting. Oh, archaeology is super cool and we found this stone tool and it means this, or you know, this particular group in the middle of nowhere over here is still you know, adhering to this tradition and it's super cool. All those things are intellectually stimulating, but there's no real takeaway from just that. And, and, and it stops there, right? What we want to do is take that information and transform it into something that is meaningful and accessible for people in their own homes to help nourish their own families. Um, I'll give you a, a quick example. So um, potatoes, potatoes are believe it or not, incredibly dangerous at a lot of different levels. They're full of toxins. But the, but the earlier varieties of potatoes, so the ancestor, you know, the wild potato, which was domesticated to become domesticated potatoes, which happened about 10,000 years ago between Bolivia and Peru, a couple independent domestications, about 10,000 years ago, those wild potatoes will kill you with the toxic level. And a lot of the early varieties of potatoes that were domesticated have toxin levels that are just as dangerous. Uh, there's hundreds. I mean, even when Columbus came, there were like 500 different types of potatoes under domestication. And there's still about that many in different parts of, especially Bolivia and Peru, under domestication. And many of them are still incredibly toxic. Um, russet potatoes and red rab, all the, a lot of the ones, a lot of the toxins have been bred out of them but potatoes by themselves are still incredibly toxic. The skin, the toxin load in the skin is off the charts and they're full of oxalates and uh, other things, glycoalkaloids. And if you cook them in certain ways, you can produce other very dangerous substances like acrylamides when you make things like French fries and potato chips. So you have this, uh, and if you eat one, it's not a big deal, but Americans especially eat quite a bit, especially our kids eat massive amount of, of potatoes that still have some level of the toxins that are in the ancient forms. So what I wanted to find out, we know that people have been eating these very toxic potatoes for a long period of time. We know they still do in certain areas. And what I wanted to do was, was experience and understand the processing technologies involved with detoxifying these very toxic forms, because that may have some bearing on how we can deal with potatoes today. So here, here's a great takeaway. 
So I spent time in, in the uh, Altiplano of Bolivia with a Quechua family, a native Quechua family. And we were doing several different things with potatoes. But the big reason I was with them was because they still engage in a, a, a practice called pasa or a form of geophagy, which is the intentional consumption of earth or clay. And it turns out that clay, certain kinds of clays will bind with certain toxins and put them into a form that our bodies can't absorb them. So they literally will eat these incredibly toxic potatoes. They'll dip them in clay, a certain clay, and eat it as they, as, as at the same time, the clays will bind with the toxins pass through their bodies and they'll derive the nutrition from the potatoes. So it was fascinating. Um, we did a couple of things like freeze drying and the like, but that was the main reason. And then when I went to Peru, I was with a, um, I'm sorry, that was an Aymara family. I was with a Quechua family in, in Peru and they create a food called tokash with their potatoes, especially their very toxic forms. And it is an incredibly intensive in-ground fermentation. So they will dig these huge pits in the ground, load them. And I, and I, and I say tons of potatoes, massive quantities of these toxic potatoes, fill it with water, keep them submerged for in some cases months. The stuff we had was I think a year in the ground and then pull it out. And one of their you know, most traditional dishes is made with this tokash, these fermented potatoes. And the fermentation, it certainly changes the texture and the flavor and the aroma, but um, it detoxifies them. It was fascinating to me. So one of the things that I was experimenting with here is, you know, how can, can we do either of these things in a modern sense that impacts the kinds of potatoes that we eat all the time in the ways that we, we eat them? And absolutely, this is it's powerful. So First off, one other sort of caveat, I lived in Ireland for a year on sabbatical and they ate a lot of potatoes in Ireland. Nowhere's near as many potatoes as, they, as these native groups were eating in Peru and Bolivia. I mean, some people were eating 10 potatoes a day, every day. Wow. Every single way that they prepare. And some of them were highly toxic. Some of them had toxin loads like we have in the grocery stores here. So, But every way they prepared them, whether um, no matter what it was, they always peeled them. Always, except for one case, always. And the act of them peeling these potatoes is much more involved than us with a potato peeler and a russet potato that takes, what, 10 seconds like this because it's a smooth, like, football-looking thing. Their native potatoes, look, you know, they were all gnarly and they didn't have a, they had a knife. So to peel one of those potatoes took 10 times longer. than So it was a very deliberate act. And everywhere I was, they were peeling the potatoes, except – when we ate it with the clay and that speaks to the detoxification level of, of the, the, the clay thing, uh, the Pasa. So, and now looking into it, most of the toxins occur in the skins of potatoes. So the very first thing that we learned from this is you should always peel your potatoes and potato peels are great for compost. They're good for nothing else. They, they are have incredible toxins in them. Um, especially if they start to turn green or get eyes, it's even worse. Um, so that's number one. Number two, the clay isn't as practical in a modern American kitchen, but the fermentation is. So we take the potatoes and we either slice them into potato chip slices or cut them into French fry size and put them in a 2% brine, ferment them for about five days. And, you know, cutting them into the slices or the French fry shape drastically increases the surface area and decreases the mass so the fermentation effects can happen a lot more readily. Five days is, 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 seems to be a, a good number rinse them off really well and and then we fry them and we always fry an animal fat we never use industrial seed nut or seed oils but here's a couple of cool takeaways one is getting rid of the peel makes a huge difference 
the fermentation not only helps detoxify the potatoes, but it also uses the carbohydrates, the starch as food. And what's fascinating is when you take the potato chips or the French fries and throw them in the hot fat, which is where the acrylamide, that cancer, that carcinogen is formed through the starches hitting the hot fat. These are going in there with a heck of a lot less starch, a heck of a lot less sugars in it. So you don't get the same amount of acrylamide formation from them than you would just throwing a potato in there. Now they crisp up the same, but you don't get the color because that, that the, the Maillard reaction is, is what is producing the, the acrylamide. So you don't get the dark fries, but you still get crisp, delicious, in my mind, nourishing fries. And the added benefit is that um, we all know that the lacto-fermentation produces a subtle but pleasing sourness, right? So you get this, it's, it's not an acetic, it, it, it's a lactic sour, a very pleasing one, the same kind you get with yogurt. So it has the essence of a um, salt and vinegar chip, really, or salt and vinegar French fry. It, it's simple. It's, and then the cool thing is, by being able to, um, you know, we understand you know, that story is much longer. I, I shortened it down, but that story and the takeaways are the very essence of what we're trying to do through Eat Like a Human and through the Food Lab is there's archaeology involved that's 10,000 years old. There's um, you know, culture and tradition that is in many cases just as old, but still going on today that are incredibly valuable to record and pass on. And then there's this you know, aspect of safe nourishment that is the takeaway from it that people can access in their kitchen. Um, that's the kind of thing we do here. I, uh, I just wanted to add, uh, well, I'm, I'm from Chile next to Brazil, And what you were saying about, I knew about uh, all the different kinds of potatoes. We have over 180 different kinds of potato. Argentina, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure they have the same amount. Peru has over, I think that over 200 different kind of potatoes. Yeah. Bolivia, and I think that they have a ton more. And I just wanted to say, when I was studying in school, the one of the instructors, he teach us uh, about about that, about that the potato is, uh, it has toxins and everything. I was, I, I communicate that to my family. I was in my first year. So when I said that to my family, everyone told me I was crazy. And in, in the school, they told us that the potato, if you freeze it, if you put it in the, in the fridge too long, they start to develop toxins, they start to change the color. Some of them, they start to develop these green veins and stuff like that. So everything that I was learning, I was communicating at home and everyone was just calling me crazy. Now that you said that, and, and at some point, when, whenever I left my country, I was like, well, yeah, probably I was crazy. When I got here, everyone was eating potato with, with the skin on. We were not used to that. And, and I didn't know why. Now, now I know. But uh, whenever I got here and everyone was eating the potato in, in a thousand different ways, I was like, yeah, maybe my instructor was crazy. But now that you're saying wow. that, it's like, there's so much behind. And, and like you said, I mean, there is so many native people in Peru, Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina, in the Patagonia, that the way that they cook everything is for, probably for a specific reason that many people don't know, but they know. It, I think that, 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 was, uh, that was great to know. So did you mostly peel the potato then too? We do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, my, for example, in my family, pretty much no one is gonna eat it with skin on. Uh, now, if I go there and I cook it with skin on, they're going to eat it because I've been out of the country and cooking for years. So they're going to trust me. They're probably I'm just going <laughs> to put toxins on, on that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, it's great to know. I mean, it's, it's great to keep learning about that. 
Um, so, uh, so Dr. Bill, you're, first of all, the, uh, conversation with you is really fascinating. I mean, you, I think because of your background and connecting the dots with, um, the history and a lot of these other cultures, I mean, it kind of brings a very different perspective that the average person doesn't really take into, uh, consideration. So it, it's really, it's really interesting to hear your, your perspectives on this. Um, we are going to take a real quick commercial break and then we'll be back to continue the conversation. Isn't Dr. Bill the best? Okay. Just a quick minute to thank our amazing sponsors, Verlasa Salmon, Dryager, and Comey for their support on our podcast. If you want to find out more information about any of our sponsors, you can head to richrosendale.com forward slash podcasts, where we have links to all of our sponsors' websites, where you can find out more information about them, their products, and why we love them so much. All right. Now let's get back into this episode. So Dr. Bill, how's, how has the pandemic changed uh, your plans and, and have you adapted and how did you do that? Oh, wow. It threw such, I, I know, <laughs> and I'm, I, it threw a wrench in everybody's plans and I don't mean to, to, um, to cry about it, but we had, we love, we love to spend time with people around the world. I mean, it, it's just, it's the most rewarding thing for, for us to, to learn from people and share their stories. Uh, and we were supposed to be all over. Uh, we had plans last summer, everywhere from we were going to be in Moscow to, to Brazil, to wow. Kenya, all over the place. None of it obviously happened. Um, we had to shift gears. Uh, we were poised actually, uh, we are on the verge of, of starting a documentary as well, which didn't happen. And what we ended up doing instead, uh, what was great, the food lab, we sent last spring when COVID really hit, the school shut down, sent all the students home. And all of a sudden I'm here in the empty shell of a building that requires people and activity to, to, to do its thing. And nobody was here. So I was, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I, um, I, there was a, a couple of groups in the area that were, I'm in a very rural area that were putting food boxes together for the elderly and, um, and families in need in the County. And so what we contribute there that that could help and all of a sudden i saw the bread that was going in there and it was the bread you can imagine was, was going in there uh so we started i brought my oldest daughter in here because they had left you know their schools had shut down too and we were in here baking sourdough bread uh, really you know really nice old world long fermented sourdough bread and to go into these packages to these families so we, she was in here three or four days a week baking and she really fell in love with it she said dad i'd like to start a sourdough bread business Okay. So she made a bunch of bread up and we have a wood fired oven out back. And like I said, we already had that sort of commercial kitchen in the basement. Um, and she made up a few little bags of different offerings and gave them around to neighbors. And uh, now we're doing uh, hundreds of loaves a week. I mean, hundreds. Wow. Uh, so, so we don't as a family eat that much bread. <laughs> when we do, it's always wild long fermented sourdough with both the bacterial and yeast fermentation. So it's, even though we don't eat a lot of it, it's a food that I can you know, get behind certainly. And it's the only thing we're legally allowed to do out of our house that I do believe in. Um, fermenting dairy here in Maryland is, is raw dairy is out of the question. So we, uh, anyhow, we started this, all the products that we offer are 100% sourdough. Um, and it's, you know, everything from traditional loaves to focaccia, sourdough pretzels are going off the charts now. And, 
it, it's going really well. We're in farmers markets. We're doing deliveries and, and pickups. So one of the things that my daughter did was she started this business that it's called Rise by Brianna, uh, and we will be able to ship very soon. So um, that started. We started a few different food lines as well, um, laying the groundwork for it. One of the things that I think is important, and this is where I can really get behind the bread piece, even though we don't eat much of it, is if you asked me 10 years ago what we need to do to eat really, really healthy, the message would be the same that I'm delivering now. And that hasn't changed. The idea that the, the technology, the processing to make food as safe and nourishing as possible is the key. That hasn't changed, but I would have been a lot more dogmatic about how to implement it. You know, you need to overnight change everything that you do as a family and you need to <laughs> do this and this and this and this and this. It's not practical. In fact, I've done it in our house, but with a lot of resistance and probably causing too much stress that isn't healthy, um, you know, in the process. What I believe now wholeheartedly is first of all, it happens in steps. It has to, if it's going to be long lasting, it has to be accessible. And what you need to do to make long lasting change in the health of, of, of your own health and, and the health of your family is to change the things that you do all the time, right? If you, if you uh, learn how to make this incredible meal and every Sunday night you make this incredible meal and it's completely from scratch and you forged this and hunted this and fermented this and put it on the table. You put it down and smack yourself on the back and pat yourself and you're all <laughs> excited and everybody enjoys it. And that's it for the week. Like it doesn't change anything. Like it, it, there's a little bit of good, but it doesn't do anything really health wise. The difference what changes is by replacing the bread that your kids eat every single day at lunch and school with the healthiest version possible or, 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 you know, taking out the industrial nut and seed oils and the mayonnaise that they eat every day on their lunch or changing out the hot, whatever it is. It's the things that you do, the mundane things that you do every single day or several times a week or all the time that's going to over the long haul, make the kind of change that we're really looking for in our, in our diets and health and a sustainability and connection and all of it. So, one of the things that we're really focused on, because we've, we've got a lot of good feedback from the people in our community here is, okay, things like snacks are hard. I mean, I know a lot of people, I'm a big part of the ancestral community, food community here, and a lot of people doing carnivore and keto and all this, who themselves have decided they're only going to eat meat or only going to eat fat, <laughs> whatever it is, but they're trying to raise a family. And for a number of different reasons, their kids are not doing that, but they still want to feed them something healthy. And they're like, the snacks are killing me. Like, I can't find a snack I believe in to give them. So one of the things, even though, again, we don't eat that many snacks, but we realize for some people, that's a great entryway to change something that they eat or their kids eat every single day. So we're launching a whole line of uh, nishtamalized maize tortilla chips that are fried in animal fat, uh, those lacto chips that we're talking about, um, real sourdough pretzels, those sorts of foods that, uh, are familiar to people that are very, the only way you can really get them is to make them yourself um, mm -hmm. that people are really looking for and craving that uh, again, I believe is the first real accessible step into improving um, uh, the health, health of your family. So we've been working on that, writing the book and um, really just trying to figure out how to survive <laughs> the craziest thing we've ever <laughs> experienced in life. Yeah, I was. Uh, it's interesting because I mean, I was telling my little boy Lawrence uh, last year, I and mean, he loves pizza. And I told him, I was like, Lawrence, you know, you can't eat pizza every day. You can't eat 
you know, if you, if you eat like a donut every day for a year and, and, and you are what you eat, you know, a year from now, it's like, you're a donut, <laughs> you're, you're a pizza. I mean, it's like you really, but it is, you know, for, for kids, I think to be able to really kind of get them to connect with them and understand like what, what you are, what you eat really, you know, and to really kind of be more connect the dots more with like what, what the origins are of what it is that you're putting into your body. And uh, too many Americans, every, uh, not Americans, just people around the world don't really consider that. Uh, but you, you bring up some really good, powerful points. Um, I'm curious, you know, somebody that has really traveled uh, a lot and at, um, over the years, I mean, how, how has, uh, you know, this pandemic and the not being able to travel, um, how has that kind of um, impacted you? I mean, you talked about like, you know, you're, you're uh, launching some of these different businesses. I mean, do you feel like I mean, your family, are they missing it? Or do you feel like these other business initiatives have kind of uh, kind of filled that void um, by being able to kind of have the time to, to launch those things? It's, well, it's all of it. It's, it's definitely these business ventures have filled the void. Mm-hmm. And, and we wholeheartedly believe in them and, and we're confident. We already see the changes that they're making um, with a lot of our customers and, and, and our students uh, and the community that we're, we're, we're trying to build. But it, it, it's hard not it's hard not to be traveling. It's 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 so very difficult. I will tell you, I don't know what we would be doing if it wasn't for the internet and social media and being yeah. able to, <sighs> to to keep tabs on people. I mean, it, it's it's wonderful. And I, I'll tell you, we were with the, the Hadza, the oldest hunter gatherer group in the world, uh, when we were actually when I was filming the show for Nat Geo. And we're, I mean, I have other than Mongolia have never been in a more remote place than I was actually with this group. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, the chief son pulls out a cell phone and this is like six, seven, six years ago. He pulls out a cell phone. What are you doing? And it was really through a translator. He's the only person who had a cell phone, but he had a cell phone, had a smartphone. And uh, we ended up getting on um, WhatsApp together. Right. And it's so funny because the only food they bring in, they bring in some maize and, and make a, a food called uh, ugali. But other than that, everything is hunted and gathered that they eat everything. And the only electronic thing they have is this one kid's cell phone and they have no electricity. So every several months, somebody makes a trip. And I mean, it is a long trip to a village where they can get some more maize and they can charge this phone. So it's so funny because you'll hear nothing from this kid for three or four months. And then all of a sudden it's like 48 hours of messages after messages until his phone dies. And that's three more months of nothing, but until uh, he can get his phone charged again. But I, it's just a, we are really connected. It's wonderful. There's no, there's, it's great to see all of you like this. Um, can't wait to meet you all in person. And I know Rachel and I have been you know, communicating uh, for, for a while now. There's no, there's no um, substitute for being in person, but it is at least better with, than no communication at all. So it's thrown a huge wrench into it. And I'll tell you, it is, I cannot wait for the world to open up again. Us too. Us too. <laughs> so um, you, on top of doing teaching at the Eastern Food Sh- Eastern Shore Food Lab, um, you also do classes at the Italian Culinary Institute. Yeah. Is are you doing that this year? Are you doing that through Zoom? Like, what's going on with that? I'm I'm not doing it this. I, I, as far as I know, I, I'm not doing it this year. I, I've but I have for the past several years, 
And what's great, so uh, Chef John Natita, who's the, the president and the head chef and the owner of it, um, it's, I first went there years ago to take a butchering class. And it was fascinating because it, it, it was such an incredible experience. And, and I went there, and I, but I went there apprehensively because the website at the time wasn't the best website. It, it read great. I mean, the experience that they were promising was exactly what I was looking for. We were going to start at a farm, take a Calabrian pig, go through the, all of it. Um, but the website looked like it was made in like 1950, well before there was a website. Um, so, I, but, so I landed and I didn't even know if it was real. And I've talked to so many people that have been there that had the same experience. Like, same, am yeah. I going to land this? You same thing? With the, yeah. Somebody going to be here? Some, and they whisked me up out of the airport and drove us across the other side of the, and, and we end up in one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. And this charismatic, amazing chef is running all of it. Um, loves food, loves people, loves stories, loves history. And about halfway through um, the class, halfway through the week, I, I went in really, really to talk to him, to tell him a little bit more about what I did and if I could offer anything. And he really saw a lot of value. He, he, he loves history. He loves the stories that lead up to why food's what it is and how our perception of all this. Um, and I was offering a little bit more of a, of, of a deeper look into a little bit deeper history. So he's brought me out there numerous times to, to create that, lay that groundwork, lay that framework for his, for his master's students to understand why what they're learning is what it is, why it's important, all those sorts of things. And then uh, more recently, I was out there teaching a fermentation class as well. So I'm not doing any this year. I know COVID has really put a, a wrinkle into, into some of what he's doing, although he is, he is running, certainly operating this year, but um, I can't wait to get back. I Same. Same. I know I've seen some of your, uh, your tools that you've crafted over there, but we haven't crossed paths yet. Um so- question on you study so much on the history of food and technologies and you know the history of it where do you see food trending in the future that's a great question i'm very optimistic i am uh, you know I'm, I'm really scared about one of the awesome things, like I mentioned earlier, is social media, is, is the internet. We can have information at a moment's notice. We can be in the kitchen. I'm sure all of us have done it. In the kitchen, we have a question, and we can pull up a recipe or answer a question like this, which is good and bad. Um, you know, one of the things that I love about libraries is before I was looking for information online, you'd go to the library to find a book. And I'd often go to the library to find a book and by standing there with all the books around it, I ended up leaving with five books that I didn't know were there. And I never even took the one that I went there in the first place. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's that experience, the, 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 the process of learning something and being around all that is enlightening and context building. The problem is we can get answers without that context. We can get answers without, you know, sort of the larger picture being conveyed to us. And it happens in a vacuum. And it's very unfortunate. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. I'm very scared about some of the, the trends in food and sustainability and, and, and ethics because I, I don't believe they're completely informed, even though completely well-intentioned. Things like impossible meat and those sorts of things scares the hell out of me. Um, but I'm excited 
and inspired because there is that ability for everybody to share information, everybody to ask questions. You know, I, I even even with my students at the college, you know, t- traditionally when we have students go off and do research, we you know pretty much most people say, okay, go do this, and these are the only places you can get information from, and make sure they're all peer-reviewed journal articles and all these other sorts of things. And I do the exact opposite. So listen, go out there. There's a ton of information. And I want you to have two sources that are peer reviewed, two sources from here. I want you to get a blog from a mother in Iowa, you know, sources, because there's all sorts of great information. And if we start asking the right questions, things like how we should be eating and not what, and not repeating the same mistakes and doing the same thing every 15 years, I am convinced that we are best poised now to create the most nourishing and sustainable and ethical food ever that we've ever had. I do think a lot of answers lie in the past, but I also don't believe the ideal human diet has been created yet. And we now have more information and more access to information than we've ever had. Um, and I think we can create that diet. That's awesome. Dr. Bill, uh, you were just mentioning about the how powerful is a uh social media and the internet, uh, in the, the, the era that we're living. Um, how important do you think that is social media? I mean, we know that you can go on Google, you're in the kitchen, probably you forgot how to, the temperature to cook something, and you're going to Google it, and you're going to say, like, okay, it's 135 or something like that, whatever you're cooking. Um, but some places they're reliable, and some places we have no idea, right? So how important do you think is social media about that and the role that everyone is just posting stuff because some people, they just want to get viral. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great, great, great point. You know, it, it's so hard, you know, as a professor, instilling in students the ability, it's so hard doing it myself too, much less teaching about it, instilling in them the ability to sort through all the junk to find good information. It is hard to do it in a library. It's hard to do it even in documentaries and in magazines, and it's really hard to do it on social media. Um, certainly there are a lot of people out there that just want to go viral and that is their sole, you know, uh, sole mission in life. But there's a ton of people out there that are doing things for the right reasons um, and trying to just learn and share information and connect and, 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 and build, a better, build a better future. I do think the cool thing about the trending aspect of social media now is that, you know, people are, are posting a lot, a lot of information over and over and over again. And you know what? You can't, it's, it's very, it, it, the more people post, the more transparent I think they become. They re, start repeating the same jump over and over and over again. You can learn pretty quickly um, if they're full of it or not and, and, and what their motivation is. You know, I find it hard. Social media is a big part of what we do. And it is very hard for me and my wife, both of us, to, to post as much as I feel we need to be posting. But at the same time, I don't want to post just to post. I only want to post if I have something to say or to share. Um, but I do realize there is that aspect of it. So there's a lot of junk that's out there, a ton of junk, and a ton of information we're getting flooded. It's flooding us. And you know, even a Google search only pulls up what particular algorithms Google is using and the people that are paying attention to this. Same thing with Instagram, same thing with Facebook. Um, so there's a lot of that to sort through. And I've talked to a lot of people I know, and it's maybe across the board, but in the ancestral diet community that are, that are fully convinced that they're getting censored, especially by Instagram 
um, people that are losing accounts, losing follower, all of this. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of that to it. But for most of us that are just scrolling through it and looking for things, I do think that the amount that people are expected to post if they're trying to stay relevant is provides a very good tool for us trying to wade through whether somebody's, you know, what, what their intentions are and, 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 and how quality their information is. It gives us some really good tools to evaluate that. So now that you said that uh, most of the people, they just start posting and posting and more and more every time. How important do you think that is uh, uh, to develop a strategy, uh, at least, for example, for your business? Just like to, you have to schedule and how you do that, you brainstorm with your family, with your team before you're posting everything. Because besides that, you are already your face and you are a brand. It's kind of like you have to protect that and you cannot yeah. just post to go viral, for example. Absolutely. So we, there's a piece of that we've already done, a piece of it we're actually working on right now. So we do have a list of criteria. My wife and I sat down months ago and said, okay, this is what we believe in. This is what we're trying to achieve. These are the parameters of each and every time we post. It can never have these things and it should always include these things. I mean, and, that, and that's sort of that's the guidelines awesome. for what we have because um, yeah, it, it's certainly, we certainly have a brand and are building a brand and trying to protect that brand. But more importantly, we hope the people that follow us uh, have, have faith in us and have trust in us. And, you know, if we're doing our job properly, not only do they believe in us and have that trust, but they then do exactly what I said to you earlier, you know, they've waded through, they've realized why we're doing what we're doing. So there's sort of this inherent, well, I believe in what they're saying because of all the things they've already done or already said. And we don't want to violate any of that. We want, we want to keep building that and make sure that the community that we're building is, you know, using what we're, what we're saying to empower themselves and to nourish themselves. Certainly um, the part we haven't done and we're working on now, and you mentioned it and it's incredibly important. And I know it is, we just haven't had a second to stop is we need to uh, be more strategic about how and what we're posting right now. If there's something that's coming up, we want to make sure people know about, we do it. If there's something we want to, you know, something happened, we, we do it, but it needs to be a little bit more strategic. And, and to be completely transparent, what we've discussed is the value we believe in what we're doing is that it, it's, it's very comprehensive. It pulls in archaeology and anthropology and primitive skills and ethnography and tradition and travel and chemistry and biology and all of it together in the same thing. So one of the, one of the, um, strategies we discussed, although we do need to talk to somebody that knows more about it than we do, is we pick a day of the week. Like every Monday is like prehistory day. And there's something, you know, from that. And and Tuesday is is, you know, modern culinary, something and and it would give us a framework to um to plan better, but it would also allow people to understand, you know, sort of understand the process of of what we're trying to do. But Any suggestions anybody has, I'd love to hear them because it is a new world for us. Dr. Bill, I want to be uh, <clears throat> want to be respectful for your time. And I mean, I, we could literally talk to you for like a couple of hours, but uh, I'm just going to, I have two uh, final questions and then I'm sure. going to let Rachel and uh, Christopher, uh, if they have any, any, um, but again, thank you. This has been super fascinating. And I definitely, I feel like, you know, listening to you has really kind of piqued my interest uh, on wanting to know more about the subject because you really kind of 
you convey it in a different perspective than when you hear a lot of people, they kind of just get on a, well, like you mentioned, all the different diets and stuff that are out there, but you know, you can tell you're coming from a very compelling place and, you know, using your background, um, you know, it, may, it makes it more, um, it makes it more authentic. And uh, it's really, really interesting to kind of uh, uh, to, to learn about it. But uh, I was going to ask you originally, I was going to ask you about what maybe was your favorite place to travel. But I think instead, emerging from the pandemic, what where would be the first place that you and your family like want to go? Um, once, once the dust settles and things get back to some sense of normal, is there a place that you guys are just like, God, we can't wait to go back there. We haven't been able to travel there because of the pandemic, but here's where we would be our first place to go back to. Uh, there's, I have like five answers to that. But <laughs> the, 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 the first one would be Ireland. Um, I oh, we lived wow, there okay. for a year, a couple of years ago. Um, I did a lot of research. We were based out of there and I was doing a lot of this research. We have, friends that have become family and it's just a, it's just a magical magical place and, and we we miss everyone so terribly um but i will follow up on the heels of that would definitely be ici and in, in italy because uh in, in, for very similar reasons wow those yeah those are two two great places uh, my mentor uh was from ireland he was a uh, certified master chef and uh i have never been to ireland but it's beautiful uh, all the pictures and everything i've seen i'd love to be able to go back but those are those are great answers um, and then my other question is, you know, you're involved in so many, so many different things, various aspects of growing your business. Is there any that we haven't touched on that you, you want to share? And, and also, where can any of our listeners learn more about uh, all the, the newest things that you're, that you're involved in? That's a really good question. Yeah. So, we're, like I mentioned earlier, we're, we're trying our best to spread as much information as possible, uh, educate and empower and, and nourish. So the mo most of the things that we're doing right now is we're doing that through blogs. We're doing it through the book that when it comes out, we're doing it through the, the virtual and online and on-demand classes and hopefully back to in-person classes as soon as possible. The, the, the one thing I think that um, we, we didn't mention but is, is at the core of everything that we do as well is that, that primitive tech, primitive technology angle. Um, one of the things we work into all of our classes, but we also offer specific classes on, uh, which may seem really strange, but are those primitive technologies? That's the root of all of these things. All of the food processing that is incredibly important is really basic. I mean, it starts with things like stone tools and fire and primitive ceramics and, 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 and those sorts of things. So we do weave, that's what makes, that's one of the things that makes our classes different from other classes is, you know, we start a butchering class talking about stone tools, doing demonstrations of this, hmm. um, because that's where it started. The first butchering was three and a half million years ago with stone tools and, and you know, it's important to understand this. In fact, I tell you, almost exactly a year ago, I was standing in um, uh, Chef Alex Atala's restaurant in his kitchen and um, he had asked wow. me to show his staff how to make stone tools. And it was powerful for me because wow. I, 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 love, I, I love him and what he does and what he stands for. His kitchen staff was, his staff was amazing. And, you know, they really got out of it. And, and this, the message was, hey, this is what you guys do. Like you guys are doing, you're the extension of something that started three and a half million years ago. I know it's a chef, you know, a, a steel chef's knife in your hand and it's a, you know, a, a propane or fire, but it's the same 
thing. You, what you're doing has such deep roots and it's so incredibly important to humans. Um, and it was wonderful. So we do offer, offer those, those classes, that stuff's woven into our classes, but we do offer those classes as well. And, and again, I hope people, um, especially ones that are, that are in our areas would, would, um, would come as soon as the world opens up because it's much easier to do it in person. And I guess the only other thing that we're, and we're going to start launching this, we were supposed to start launching it last summer, but COVID threw a wrench in it. We will be offering several different, um, um, trips that, uh, are focused on all of the themes and the messaging that we do the entire brand, all of it. Um, one to Ireland, um, one to Oaxaca, probably one to Kenya, and we're looking to hopefully add Sicily and do it as well. And the idea is, you know, these are uh, amazing food-related trips, but they all start with archaeology. They all start with learning a little bit of anthropology. They all they all are focused on food and diet and health and tradition and stories and humanity, um, all of it. So look for those because they will be uh, they will be online as soon as the world opens up. And then finally, to answer the other part of your question, of, you know, keeping up to date with things, certainly the website Eat Like a Human is, is a great place. Um, anything to do with the food lab, if you go to uh, washcol.edu, so Washington College's website, um, you can very easily get to the food lab and see what we're doing here. And then finally, I'm on social media at Dr. Bill Schindler, Dr. Bill Schindler. That's awesome. Awesome. Rachel, you want to go first? Sure. Um, so of all the places that you've traveled and all of the different, you know, foods that you've tried, what has been the most out there thing that you and your family have tried and enjoyed? <laughs> Maybe oh, maybe you didn't enjoy it. Maybe you didn't enjoy it. I, I, I have the best answer to that. I was gonna say McDonald's. Victor, <laughs> you said enjoy. That's funny. Now, um, okay, so uh, quick quick little aside, and I know we talked a little bit about this earlier before. before. We were in Kenya specifically to study uh, a group of people in West Pokot that make something called Mersic, which is an ash yogurt. Um, and ash yogurt is um, a, a raw fermented dairy be, uh, food that has a, a ash in it, charcoal really, and has all these supposed benefits to it that is, some people suggest that's why Kenya produces such amazing marathon runners and athletes and things like this. Um, and that was amazing. Wow. But we also took the opportunity to go spend time with the Samburu warriors who are uh, nomadic pastoralists like the Maasai that have animals. They eat almost no vegetables and they um, drink blood and milk every day from, from their, from their cattle. Wow. And they, they look at blood like we look at milk as a replenishable resource. They rarely kill their animals. They actually don't even eat a whole lot of meat. They do. I mean, they will do it, but they, and if you can think about it, you know, humans, we give blood, we'll give, I don't know, a quart of blood and then we can give blood again because it replenishes. Well, these massive animals can easily give a quart of blood without feeling any of the effects, make more blood, and we, they can go get literally tapped, you know, weeks later. So um, a couple of, and I know we're almost out of time, but I want to give a couple quick takeaways. To get to this group, it took plane flights, days worth of driving, camping in the middle of the bush, armed guards, and then finally we ran out of anything that resembled a dirt road and drove up a, this dried riverbed for a couple hours until we got to this village. And I remember when we stepped out of the vehicles, 
up at the top of the bank of the river at the dry riverbed were three Sombrero warriors. They looked like they were in their mid twenties. And I never in my life have seen such healthy looking people. I mean, they were the epitome of what I think humans should look like everything from the, how bright their eyes were to their teeth, to just their stature and the way that they stood. All of it was just, it radiated. I, I don't know a better word. And then we go and they, they grabbed the, they, they took a cow. Uh, and the quick version is they, they put a, a rope around his neck very quickly. Didn't bother the cow at all. And they did that just like when we give blood and we put a, you know, the rubber band around our arm and, and their, the jugular got big and a guy walked up to the, to the cow with a little bow and arrow. It looked like a toy bow and arrow. And this arrow went into the jugular and it pops out and there's a stream of blood. My youngest daughter was thought we killed the animal, so she wasn't very happy. <laughs> they collected about a quart of blood in a gourd. And then they took the they threw some dirt in a wound and took the rope off and the cow walked away and it was absolutely fine. And they went and milked another cow. So raw milk right into it. They were mixing it together. Um, and then we were drinking this. They drink it every day. And twice a day, and the men wow. and the boys during the dry season, when the you know at the during the dry season, the uh, vegetable resources for these animals is like horrible, and it takes a lot of work for their bodies to derive any nutrition from this. So they have to eat massive quantities of food. So they literally they take off with their animals. The men and the boys take off for half the year with a spear a little bow and arrow, a gourd, and go. They don't even carry something to carry water, and they just follow these animals. And all that they eat is the milk and blood twice a day. Women eat it back, uh, back in the village. If they're sick or pregnant or lactating, they have extra doses of it. And this is, this is their food. And what floored me was a couple things. Number one, how amazingly healthy these people were. Number two, how sustainable this was. I mean, we can have conversations about the ethics involved in bleeding cows and all this, although I will tell you, the cow didn't even flinch, but it was this process that just seems so circular and, you know, all, all of it was beautiful and it tasted amazing. I mean, it was satiating. You took a sip of this once you got over the modern Western view of what this is really like. And it tasted like a thick, irony chocolate milkshake is what it tasted like wow. but it felt you know if you ever ate just a nourishing meal and your body knows that you got something out of it that's what it felt like um those were all incredible takeaways but the other takeaway from it was i come back to maryland and the the two ingredients of the diet the mainstay part of the diet of the healthiest people i've ever encountered are one's completely illegal the raw milk and the other is almost impossible to find, which is fresh blood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we sit here and have, you see, even that academic institute have all these, you know, high level conversations about food and diet and health and sustainability and all these sorts of things. And we're not even scratching the surface of what could really be a part of that conversation. And I'm not saying we're ever going to drink blood and raw milk and that, but it's not even part of the conversation, which is fascinating, but that was fairly intense <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so interesting Fascinating. yeah absolutely you can see rachel's face uh craving for that uh cow's uh blood it was I'm like it's it sounds it sounds crazy like you said what is days for um dr bill i have a, a three last question that they're gonna be super short um the first one uh is gonna be 
um, what do you find most, most gratifying about teaching others? The second one is going to be, uh, I can't wait to, to get the book. Uh, I'm going to get the book for all of us. Uh, and I'm going to show you an email later to see if uh, you can sign it and, and other stuff. Um, and the third one, uh, well, that, that's the second one about if you will be open later on to do a part two of the podcast to talk about the book and everything, because I'm pretty sure it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. Um, and the third one is going to be, I it just got my attention that you have been drinking something and I, I hope, hopefully it's not water. And I'm wondering if it's something else after everything that you have uh, been saying, <laughs> you're going to say it's water. <laughs> Well, let me do this backwards. It's unfortunately water. <laughs> it's just water. Um, although I'll tell you what, I, I can follow it up with something, something very, uh, something a little bit cooler than water um, to kind of piggyback off of Rachel's question. Uh, the strangest thing I ever drank besides the, besides the blood maybe, right? Um, so it is in, we spent a lot of time in Mongolia, especially when I, I was filming the show, uh, we were in the middle of nowhere, especially in the northern northern Mongolia up in the steppe. And they they have a very dairy-based diet, um, in very dairy-based, and it's almost all fermented. But they will make a beer out of uh, mare's milk. So they'll ferment the mare's milk. Uh, it's a low-alcohol beer. It's, I think it's like 2.5%, 3% alcohol. But um, which is really, really interesting. Mare's milk has one of the highest sugar contents, which is how of, of milk. And that's why it, it ferments so well and produces some alcohol. But they then take it a step further and they distill it into a mare's milk vodka, which I stuck in an algae. I, I, I smuggled back home because I wanted to share it with my family in, in, a, in an algae bottle. And I get home and I pour some of this stuff out and it looked it was this cloudy, weird, cloudy thing. It smelled and tasted like liquid blue cheese. And it packed a punch. <laughs> Fermented distills mare's milk was is probably a close second to the to the blood raw milk uh, raw milk thing. But it wow. is if anybody ever gets a chance to try it, it is worth it is it is worth it. Um absolutely love to come back and talk about the book. Um I, thank you. That would be fantastic. Uh and then what do I love most about teaching? Um, there's, I, I find that part of the reason I became a professor is because I wanted my life. I, I felt that I was probably most valuable. I, I love doing research. I mean, I love learning new things. And then, you know, I have a fairly varied background and I love taking it and looking at these things from different perspectives and repackaging it um, to make sense of the world. And what I, but that was, that's half of what I love. The other half is the teaching part. And what I love about teaching and what I find most valuable about teaching and, and what I feel my role is as, as a teacher, whether it's in a college classroom or whether it's in a kitchen is I want to share how I see the world, allow my students to see the world through my eyes, not to replace how they see the world, but to enhance it. And that I, I find that incredibly valuable. And, and it, it allows people to not only see the world differently, but see their place in the world differently, to see their place in the kitchen or as the caregiver, as a provider uh, in a different way, to see 
their uh, role as a steward of the land, whether they're foraging or hunting or farming or butchering in a, in, in a different way. So um, I, I guess the shorter answer is what I find most valuable about teaching, or at least my approach to teaching is, is being able to share with my students the way that I view the world. Um, but, you know, the more direct sort of when, when I see it happen is, is and, and all of you know, because we've all taught people at some way you know, to see that change in their eyes and their face when something makes sense mm-hmm. or they've been able to do it for the first time or, or whatever. That right there is just so incredibly uh, valuable and rewarding. And I will tell you, it's difficult to do virtually to, to get that response. You know, it's difficult to see yeah. that and feel that response. Um, so I can't wait to get back in person <laughs> as soon as possible. Imagine that. Awesome. Well, uh, this was absolutely just terrific uh, talking with you today. And uh, we want to thank you again for being so generous with your time. I know we went a little bit over, uh, but we it was totally worth it. And uh, as Chris indicated, uh, we'd love to be able to have you come back uh, for a, a part two whenever the book comes out. And uh, I can't wait to, to dig into it. I mean, it just sounds really fascinating. And you, know, you can tell you're really... Um, you know, you passionate. And, and I feel like whenever you're trying to teach something, uh, people can tell if, you know, mm-hmm. it's really genuine and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, I feel like it comes across more compelling and, uh, you definitely, uh, it, it really just kind of just exudes from you. So, uh, thanks again, Dr. Bill. And, uh, you're always welcome here in Northern Virginia and, uh, Rachel and Christopher are in, uh, Florida. And hopefully we can meet you in person here once things kind of get back to some sense of normal but thank you again uh, for a great conversation thank you my pleasure thank you hey everybody i hope you enjoyed that episode with dr bill schindler i want to thank dr bill for being our guest on the show and of course join us next week when we'll have a new guest and also i want to say thank you to all of our sponsors uh check out art of flame i've been working with these guys for years and I'm telling you, if you want to elevate the outdoor cooking experience, look no further to Art of Flame grills. Uh, What I'm really excited about aren't just the unique design of the grills, but they continue to innovate with all these great accessories. One of the newest ones that I'm starting to use is the wok attachment. But check out their website, uh, click accessories, and you'll see all the different things that they have, rotisseries, uh, all kinds of cool stuff. And of course, you know that all of our sponsors are on our webpage, richrosendahl.com, select podcast, and there you'll see a link to everywhere the show is held. And of course, everywhere, uh, all of our sponsors, and you can go directly to their website. Uh, also, another great partner we have is Dry Ager. Uh, if you love dry aged meat and you feel like you can't get that quality anywhere else other than a restaurant, well, that's no longer the case. You can get your very own dry aging unit in your home or for your restaurant. They have a range of different sizes. And I'm telling you, if you love dry aged meat, this product is incredible. We've been so happy with the product that we're getting out of uh, the dry ager. Uh, We've been doing a lot of uh, dry aged rib roast, uh, we've been doing duck, but one of the new things that we're getting ready to start is some charcuterie. We're gonna do our own ham, so we're really excited. I'll keep you posted about that. But check out their website. There's also a link from our webpage directly to their product page. And you can see their whole range of of accessories and anything that you need for dry aging. Their cabinets are fantastic. Uh, Also, thank you to Verlasso Salmon. We've been working with Verlasso Salmon for years. Uh, They are always reliable. Their fish is always top quality and fresh. It's also 
uh, farm raised and sustainable in Chile, South America. Uh, great product. We feature that on many of our menus uh, all over the place uh, when we're catering uh, and in our, in our venues. Uh, fantastic product. We'll be using it in our barbecue class as well. Uh, huge fan of Verlasso salmon. And also, for those of you who are looking for a solution to manage recipes, check out Komi, K-O-H-M-E-E. Komi.com is the recipe software that we use for all of our projects, all of our restaurants and uh, catering, you name it. It is a terrific, easy to use, very user-friendly and easy to manage your menus, your recipes, and you keep them all in one place that your entire team can have access to. I even use it for my family recipes. So thanks again to all of our sponsors. Thanks to all of you for continuing to support the show. Remember, you can go to richrosenell.com under podcast and you'll see everywhere that the show is available. If you want to see the video version, go to Rosendell Collective on YouTube and you can catch all of the past episodes. Anyway, thanks so much. We'll see you next week.